Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of embryonic development and sexist biases. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, biology, biases, and basics of sex determination. I cannot tell you how excited I am about this episode. Granted, this episode is on one hand a bit niche, a bit science nerd specific, but on the other hand, it speaks to the bias in science that is relevant to half the population. We're going to talk about the biology of sexual differentiation, basically how we get from chromosomes to humans that are male and female. And we're going to talk about the biases that have influenced research in this area for centuries. One of my pet peeves is when biology teachers say, quote, female is the default sex. If you've taken a biology class either in high school or college, you may have heard this. It's really common. How this is usually taught is to say something along the lines of, here are all the biological steps that go into creating the male mammal. But if all of these important steps to becoming a male don't happen, the person or rat or dog will default to female. So becoming male is seen as an active process, but becoming female is a consolation prize. As with many biological tales we tell ourselves about sex and gender, this one is pretty persistent. On today's episode of Do We Know Things, I'm joined by Dr. Anne Fausto-Sterling, feminist biologist and a research hero of mine. I ask her to explain how we develop into different sexes, if female is the default sex, and why people are so obsessed with the biology of sex differences. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. Dr. Anne Fausto-Sterling is a world-renowned, award-winning biologist whose work challenges assumptions about sex and gender development. She is a professor emerita of biology and gender studies in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology and Biochemistry at Brown University. She is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. In addition to over 60 academic articles, Dr. Fausto Sterling has written several books, including Myths of Gender, Sexing the Body, and Sex-slash-Gender, Biology in a Social World. Much of her current focus is on applying dynamic systems theory to gender development. I will put a link to her website in the show notes so you can see all of her work for yourself. Welcome, Dr. Fausto Sterling. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining me today. Could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, um, I am currently retired, but sort of still active. So I've moved from being a a professor where I was a professor of biology and gender studies at Brown University for more years than we want to say. (laughs) And um, I retired several years ago, and I'm continuing to publish and speak out on intellectual issues of concern to me. So I guess you could call me a public intellectual now. I've made that transfer. Yes. And you're such an important public intellectual, especially in the realm of sex and gender and biology and social influences. And I'm very grateful that you were able to come talk to me today about this. I'm happy you asked. So my first question is that in biology classes, both at the high school level and at the university level, the common narrative is that female is the default sex. 
What does that mean, and why is that story told in so many biology classes? Well, I've actually been critiquing that way of structuring female development. Really, I've been critiquing it for, I'm going to say, I started writing about it as something that can't be right in the mid-1990s. And I start to work on it a lot in my 2000 book, Sexing the Body, but for which, by the way, there is now a new edition, came out in June 2020, so um, with quite a bit of new material in it. But the idea, it's, it's a strange idea, because if you ask, well, from a scientific point of view, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything, really, because there's nothing that kind of just happens in mm-hmm. development, um, which is sort of what how people use the default. They, they're like, male development is active, and you have to have chemicals like hormones that intervene to make it happen. And otherwise, if you do nothing, it just, you know, chugs along a female pathway. Well, that turns out, first of all, to actually be quite wrong. And in contemporary work on development of primary biological sex in in male and female, it's pretty clear that there are all these active pathways involved in controlling female development. But it is reminiscent of a really long, you know, centuries old way of representing male and female. So it's one of those in which uh, male is an active presence and female is absent, Mm -hmm. is an absence. I mean, we have that that in that idea shows up in Freud, but he certainly wasn't the first one to come up with that idea. So it's one of these interesting things where centuries old conventions about how to conceptualize male and female show up in biological theory and writing. And really, it has no business there. And it also, I think, has prevented until until pretty recently, it's prevented people from thinking about scientists, from thinking about and investigating how female development occurs. Mm-hmm. And we want to say, or often scientists say, that science is objective, kind of this idea it exists in a vacuum. But that's clearly not the case if we're being shaped by these old stories. Right. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It strives to be objective, but there's an awful lot of interesting discussion about what that word objectivity means. And I would rather think of science as always having the viewpoint, but it tries to be data-based. I'm very much an empiricist. I like to see what the evidence is for something that I say. Mm -hmm. But data doesn't just speak for itself. Data always has to get structured by a theory. And then in turn, the theory drives us to collect certain kinds of data and not collect other kinds of data. So if you have a theory that male development is active and female development just happens, well, you collect lots of data about male development, but you Mm -hmm. forget to collect about female development. So that word objectivity, and there's a whole lot of feminist science studies theory and feminist philosophy of science that has struggled with that concept of objectivity in in really interesting ways and has come up with a a viewpoint about objectivity as being conditioned or socially structured. Uh, It doesn't mean it's a bad ideal, but it's not an ideal that sort of, it exists only in the abstract in any particular instance you have what Sandra Harding, who's a philosopher of science, called um, partial objectivity. So you you see 
part of a bigger picture. Right. That makes sense. Can I ask you to sum up the steps involved in going from embryos with XX or XY sex chromosomes to fully developed females or males, respectively? Okay. So before I say this, let's let's make clear that we're talking about the majority of cases mm -hmm. and not all cases. Right. So there is no absolutely predictable endpoint. But if you have an XX individual, they develop an embryo that begins to differentiate and they have uh, what's called a fetal gonad. And XY individuals also have fetal gonads. And the future sex cells start out, they actually form in humans, interestingly, in the area of the developing gut. And then they migrate out of mm -hmm. the gut and into a structure that's the, called the fetal gonad. The fetal gonad is made up of so-called somatic cells, as opposed to the germ cells, the future eggs or sperm. And depending on where in that gonad they end up, they are influenced by the somatic cells to develop into either oocytes or sperms. And to clarify for listeners, oocytes are commonly known as the egg cells in the ovary. And that influence is dependent actually on the chromosomal structure of the gonad of the somatic cells more than it is on the makeup of the future germ cells. Okay. So, uh, so that's one interesting thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one, so that's one level. So you end up with fetal gonadal sex. Well, depending on the fetal gonadal sex, which is usually testes or ovaries, um, the gonad starts to make hormones of different kinds um, and they can make hormones that uh, that inhibit male development and promote female development uh, or vice versa, depending on whether it's X, XY or XX. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the fetal hormones uh, take both the gonad structure, but also which is thought of as the primary as primary sex. But there's also a whole set of secondary sexual structures which are present the same structures are present in a very young embryo, whether it's XX or XY. And mm -hmm. these include potentially the future malarian ducts, the future uh, seminiferous tubules, the future cervix and uterus, the future fallopian tubes. All of these are present as embryonic structures. And then which hormones the gonad makes uh, either encourages the development of some and discourages the development of of others, well, or vice or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So though, that's called secondary sex development, and that's still all internal. And then, as development proceeds a little further, hormones produced by the gonad, primarily by the now developing gonad, um, influence the development of external structures. These are the ones that are visible at birth. And again, the same structures are present in a in a young embryo at say eight weeks of development. But depending on the um, developmental milieu, the hormones primarily that are produced by the gonads, these may develop in a, uh, they, they'll diverge into a, a feminine looking direction with an open vagina, urethra, and uh, depositing urine in, to, into the vagina, vaginal lips, and a developing clitoris. Or if they develop in a male direction, the little nubbin that either becomes a clitoris or a penis starts to develop more like a penis. The open lips will fuse around the shaft of the penis. 
the gonads will descend into into what is the the scrotum or closed space that's closed that's formed by this developing structure. So then you have what's understood as the ex external genitalia or genital sex. So so far I've talked to you about several layers of sex development. The, mm -hmm. The chromosomal sex, which is what you wanted me to start with, fetal gonadal sex, fetal hormonal sex, fetal secondary sex, external sex, and then by the time you have the infant being born, the external sex is usually used by um, by the adults around to identify and decide what what sex to assign at birth, and then that begins to become social sex or what many people then start to call gender. Mm -hmm. So you have these multiple layers, and when everything goes all together in unison, you get you get a clear body that is either assignable as female or assignable as male, but that they don't always go together. They can operate somewhat independently of one another. And when that happens, you may get a child born who has a mixture of different characteristics. They could have an internal uterus, but an external penis, or even in, in a process that's really poorly understood, an presumptive ovary on one side and a presumptive testis on the other side. Um, so, and those individuals are sometimes called intersexuals, sometimes called babies or infant, infants who have differences of sexual development. Yes, and I hope to cover intersex infants and people uh, in a future episode in more detail. Good. But thank you so much for mentioning that here. You've touched on this a bit already, but what are some of the ways in which the history of male bias is present in biology when we're talking about the study of sex? Oh, well, there's been a long history of thinking about gender and sex in biology. We could go back centuries, but really my prowess as a medieval historian is pretty limited. <laughs> I've, used, I've used secondary sources mm -hmm. in, in some of the things I've written. Uh, but if you start with Darwin, it's always a convenient starting point. He thought that females had the position they did in society, women had the position they did in society because they were a highly variable sex and mm -hmm. that they they were kind of flighty and you know, unpredictable. And it, that was why they didn't have that steady presence in mm. that, that would enable them to be part of the public eye. And that's how an awful lot of people viewed female development and viewed adult females. Uh, they also kind of ranked them intermediate. They, they did a lot of work on, not Darwin, but Darwin cited work on female brain size and female brain development. And they were like, women have smaller brains, so they can't be as smart as men, a whole lot of stuff like that in the 19th and early 20th century. Then psychologists and biologists began to gather data that suggested that actually men had more variability. And that then became a reason to explain why you had, um, this is Francis Galton and people like this in the, in the early, late 19th, early 20th century, they argued that you had more male geniuses. Mm -hmm because there, the normal curve was wider spread out for males. That is, they were more more variable. So there there might be more males at the low end of the curve who were had developmental problems, but there were also more males at the high end of the curve, which meant that geniuses 
were much more likely to be male than female. It didn't rule out the possibility of a rare female genius, but it, it suggested that the reason men excelled in intellectual fields was because they were more variable. So you had this complete flip-flop of a claim about what, but always it was why then men were ahead of women. Yes, exactly. So you have this kind of thing going on, I mean, throughout the history of biology and psychology of, of the modern history, which I, I kind of date from Darwin mm-hmm. up to the present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen things too about how brain size was considered because men had bigger brains on average, but then when they did it comparison to body weight, actually women's brains were larger on average. And so then they flipped it and just... Yeah, it's it- really tough. I mean, th- this continues to be an argument actually about mm-hmm. how you what would be a, a proper way to normalize brain size for brain volume for overall body size because men do, are on average a little bigger than women mm-hmm. um, but they may also have a slightly larger brains beyond that size difference it's, it's really not clear and then it's not clear what you get which which is the right way to normalize or if there is a right way and it seems like people think the right way is the way that then gives them an answer. Either way, I mean, I'll, I'll say, but either it says men and women are equal or or it's like, see, we normalize this way and it shows men and women are not equal. I think it's pretty much not asking the right question. Mm-hmm. And so what do you think is the right question? Well, with regard to brain size, it probably just isn't relevant to mm-hmm. brain function. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And whatever the right question is, it's got to be much more finite in terms of brain function. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And one of your chapters in um, the sex gender book, I think goes through some really great examples of explaining why structure and function don't necessarily align and don't necessarily yeah. tell us anything. Or I mean, structure doesn't necessarily tell us anything about function, although right. sometimes it does. <laughs> sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of brain size, uh, the last question I wanted to ask was that there seems to be such a cultural obsession about demonstrating how different men and women are and how this is determined by our biology. Uh, Why do you think books about brain sex, for example, that are trying to prove that men and women are so different based on their brain are so popular? It's an interesting question. I think... um I think for one thing, they they provide an easy way for people to explain things they see in the world. Mm -hmm. So people both see in adults, they see different behaviors or different sort of average predilections from which they're willing to generalize between men and women. It's such a difficult thing because you see people saying, well, men are better at navigating and they can... It, well, no one uses maps anymore, but back, <laughs> back in my day, they could supposedly could read maps better. And then that would immediately hark back to some idea that, well, men had to had better spatial ability because they were hunters. And then, you know, there were just the, you'd weave a whole story about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe on average, it was true that men could read maps better. But then you'd think about and and so if you if you thought that and you and most people thought that and you got a a book that said well here it is it's all in the brain you're like great and it also is probably very reassuring if you're raising children mm. and you begin to see different attributes of your kids appear at pretty young ages mm-hmm. and then you have to remind people to think about individuals like in my family my father drove because my mother was the only one who could read a map 
Ah, right. And that was true. And that's true. I can read a map better than my brother. Mm-hmm. Although, again, now we both use Waze, but mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But still, uh, I mean, it it just it, in any individual situation, it isn't necessarily true, mm-hmm. which is the problem of of making generalizations from averages. Absolutely. Uh, but I think it's a question. It sort of uh, confirms folk theory. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the easiest way to say it. Mm-hmm. The, the attraction of these books. Yeah. It goes along with what people want to believe already. And to some extent, what they observe in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate this. And I think it will be so helpful for the listeners to hear your inside scoop on how biology of sex and gender works. Oh, you're so welcome. Okay. So we covered a lot of biology details here today. As discussed, the idea that female is a default that just occurs in the absence of a Y chromosome has long been debunked. We now know more about the genes and proteins that are required to produce female mammals. But that information is still not included in a lot of biology textbooks, and it's often not included in popular websites and other science communications. Another take-home point that I want to note is that all human embryos, up until about week six to eight, are not able to be differentiated by gender. They have similar structures. All of them have the potential to develop into testes or ovaries, labia or a scrotum, penis or clitoris. All of these structures are the same until the gonads are developed and hormones start to do their work. And development of males and females requires a series of steps to end up with one or the other. But, as Dr. Foster Sterling mentioned, those aren't the only options. Some people are intersex, which we will discuss in more detail in a future episode. When researchers push back against dominant narratives around gender or sex, they're often labeled as being not objective or letting their bias interfere with their work. Those who are part of the dominant narratives are seen as objective and unbiased, or at least they see themselves that way. But of course, all researchers have our own perspectives and theories that drive our work. Not acknowledging their perspective doesn't make a researcher more objective. We have clear evidence that many scientific fields, such as biology, have developed with great biases. We need diverse perspectives and acknowledgement of subjectivity in order to move towards a more clear and accurate science. That's all for this episode. If you're interested to learn more, I encourage you to check out the videos on Dr. Fausto Sterling's website under media at the link in the show notes. There's a ton of good info there. If you have any feedback or peer review, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DeweyKnowThings, and you can email me at DeweyKnowThings at gmail.com. DeweyKnowThings is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. Things.